Well, we're starting a series across the Grace family of churches called Book of the Twelve. We're taking a look at the minor prophets, and even though these books were written thousands of years, they speak with a poignant precision for our world today that is just stunning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Joel chapter 2 this morning. Joel chapter 2. I want to ask you a question. Have you ever felt like everything that you loved in your life was being taken? That the things that you found meaning and purpose with were being stolen? Like everything you cared about was being devoured and devastated. For me, it started in 1995 when Taco Bell took away the chili cheese burrito. <laughs> Before then, I knew what I was going to order. It was a chili cheese burrito. It's got the beef. It's got the cheese. Add a little sour cream and maybe a little tomato. It's going to be fantastic. Then in 2019, it was the Mexi Melt they took away. Again, beef, cheese, tomato, and finally in 2020, it was the Mexican pizza, and that was it. Beef, cheese, tomato, same three ingredients, <laughs> packaged in very different ways. And then word this year that the Mexican pizza is back. We can only hope that the full restoration of the Mexi Melt and the Chili Cheese Burrito would be following, right? I'm having a little fun this morning to bring up a, you know, difficult subject of what, what do you do when everything that you care about has been taken? And originally, I preached from this text at our Grace Summit because the word coming into this year from the last two years is that so many of us personally and our churches had felt like everything that we held dear had been taken from us. The devastation that happened in our lives individually and corporately. The death the real death of millions of people. The disagreements, the transition, the deconstruction. In fact, over the Grace family of churches, our one-year goal was that we would hope that every church would encounter a Joel 2 restoration reset where God would restore everything that, in Joel's language, the locusts had eaten. But when I gave that talk back in January, I had no idea how much I would need that talk personally, especially over the last seven weeks. When you look at prophets in the Old Testament, when they see the landscape that they're prophesying about, one of the ways that you can think about that is they see a series of mountains. And sometimes they can only see the mountaintops. They have no idea of the valleys between the mountains. And so the prophets are looking at the mountain range and they're telling what they see. But they have no idea about the full journey to 
encompass those mountains. And I'm not claiming to be an Old Testament prophet by any means, but I will say this. When I was looking at the landscape of our churches, we were talking about the devastation that we've been through the last two years, and I was speaking into that, not knowing that over the next three months, my own life would take a tragic turn. So I want to preach this message to you today confessionally because I'm being called to lean into it again. And when I talk about devastation personally, I'm talking about every boat in my life has a fire on it. And many of that, many of those fires are not because of decisions that I have made in a negative way. Think about my family and 12 years ago we decided to adopt a little boy from Haiti because even though we were struggling with our own infertility issues, God had worked a miracle. We have two biological daughters and yet we felt in the middle of that valley God was calling us to adopt a little boy from Haiti. And in the last three months, two years, I've also seen the way that the trauma of the time before we got him has worked trauma in our family. And I feel the devastation of that. Seven weeks ago, I was leading an organization that was up and to the right. In two years of existence, we had literally seen an explosion of God's work. It was a for such a time as this moment in a for such a time as this opportunity. And the last seven weeks of my life have been pure hell. As I've watched decisions of one of my partner train wreck that opportunity. And two weeks ago, had to give a notice that our company was dissolving to our 10 employees or 11 employees that were working full time. Tragedy changes your trajectory. But what you do in the tragedy determines how your trajectory is changed. And I bring that up because it's that kind of situation that the book of Joel addresses. Scholars aren't sure when Joel was written. Is it the beginning of the exile? Is it in the middle of the exile? Is it after the exile? But one thing's for sure, the exile is the most devastating moment in Israel's history. And the stories of the book of Joel have it located between two potentially devastating events. First, there's an invasion of locusts that devours everything. All of the harvest, everything that they have worked for, the countryside, becomes a wilderness in an instant. 
And yet the things that the locusts have eaten point to a more poignant reality of an army from the north that looks like it too will be a plague of locusts that come and devastate everything. And the question of the book of Joel is this, does our current devastation have to lead to our total destruction? Does our current devastation, what we're currently experiencing, does our calamity today have to lead to our captivity tomorrow? Does our current devastation have to lead to our total destruction? And the book of Joel is written to say, no, it doesn't have to be this way. That in the midst of your tragedy, you can make some choices that open up a window of possibility so that a new reality can emerge. We're in Joel chapter 2, and we're going to put a diagram on the screen uh, as we go through this morning as well to talk about these different kinds of choices that we can make. But in Joel chapter 2, verse 12, in the midst of the devastation, Here's the word of God to the people of God. He says, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. Who knows, he may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord. Blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people and consecrate the assembly. Bring together the elders, gather the children, those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave her, his room, let the bride her chamber. Let the priest who minister before, before the Lord weep between the temple porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say the peoples, where is their God? So we've got the diagram here. The people of Israel are in devastation. And, and that downward cycle there is to say, does our current devastation have to lead to our total destruction? So the word there at the bottom of the screen in the box is that word destruction. But here in Joel chapter 2, Joel begins to open up a different kind of way. And this is the next cycle that we see up here at the top. And here in verses 12 through 17, the first move of this cycle is a call for purification. It's a purification that comes in the midst of the tragedy, that comes in the midst of the destruction, and comes through repentance. He says, call a sacred assembly. Get the elders together, but no one is exempt. Not even the newborn child that's still nursing at the breast or the bride or bridegroom who are celebrating their honeymoon. Everyone needs to come together. Weep between the porch and the altar. Repent. And sometimes we think of repentance as a confession of sin, and sometimes it is a confession of sin. But really, repentance is this kind of change the way that you think. Get a dose of your reality. Can I tell you, I try to avoid reality many times in my life. I don't like stepping on the scale or looking in the mirror. 
Because the idealized version of me that I carry in my mind is way better if I don't step on the scale or look in the mirror. I read uh, not too long ago um, this, this quote. Uh, I thought it was really poignant. It says, uh, the, the leading cause of injury for old men is old men still thinking they are young men. I feel that. I, feel, I, I still think I'm 21 in my mind. And I'm amazed at how many times I give myself the benefit of the doubt with my intentions. I think the worst of others, but the best of myself. My intentions are always good in my mind. And this step of purification is this moment in the midst of tragedy to say, let's re-examine that. What is the real picture going on? What is the unidealized version of yourself that you need to deal with? And to let the Lord change the way that you think about him and the way that you think about yourself, the way that you think about others. So Joel says we need to lean into purification in this moment. And it's going to require a repentance. And, and we draw the line like this because that often initially looks like revival. But if this cycle stops in purification, it will eventually lead to legalism. Purification that doesn't lead to restoration leads to legalism. And this is what we get to starting in verse 18. It says, then the Lord will be jealous for his land and take pity on his people. The Lord will reply to them, I am sending you grain, underline this, new wine and oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn among the nations. I will drive the northern army far from you, pushing it into a parched and barren land. With its front columns going into the eastern sea and those in the rear into the western sea. And its stench will, will go up, its smell will rise. Surely he has done great things. Be not afraid, O land. Be glad and rejoice. Surely the Lord has done great things. Be not afraid, O wild animals, for the open pastures are becoming green. The trees are bearing their fruit. The fig tree and vine yield their riches. Be glad, O people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the autumn rains in righteousness. He sends abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains as before. The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow, underline again, with new wine and oil. I will repay you. Here's the key verse in all of Joel. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locusts and the young locusts, the other locusts and the locust swarm, the great army that I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat until you are full, and you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I, the Lord your God, and that I am the Lord your God, there is no other. Never again will my people be put to shame. So this call that Joel chapter 2 starts in purification that requires repentance. 
but the purification leads to the possibility of restoration. And that restoration requires innovation. He says, I'm going to restore everything that the locusts have eaten. That northern army is going to be driven into the sea. But this restoration is not a restoration without scars. Did you notice it starts with a stench? In other words, when the locusts are driven out and they die, there's going to be a stench that rises up. That's why we draw this second line here with a little bit of a dip because restoration often starts with a sting. It starts with a stench. In other words, there is no restoration that comes without scars. And if you've ever lost it all, only to begin to find it all, you know the scars. I mean, even take a look at the book of Job. We love the book of Job because it, it details the tragedy and devastation of one man's life that so many times in our lives that we can identify with. And in the midst of that, we, we see God purifying Job, and by the end of it, Job, it's doubled. He has double what he has at the beginning of the book. At the beginning of the book, he had kids, and he had livestock, and he had, you know, uh, houses. He had finances. He goes through incredible devastation. And at the end, you know, at the beginning, he, he loses his kids, and he loses his livestock, and he loses his financial stuff. He loses his health. He loses it all. But by the end, it's all doubled. And sometimes when you, people talk about the book of Job, you <clears throat> think about going through that devastation and, and that promise of being doubled. But the truth is, even though Job is doubled, he doesn't live without scars. You can have more kids, but you can never really replace the kids that you've lost. Even when you have the birth of a new child, after you've lost an old one, it doesn't fully take away the pain, the sting of what has been broken. And I've lost it all now three times. This is the third time. First two, I saw God double. But I also have the scars to prove it. And no matter what happens in that restoration, there's still a brokenness in the midst of it. But it's a restoration that requires innovation. Did you notice there twice it says, it's not going to be just getting you back what you had. There's a new wine and a new oil. And that new wine is going to require a new kind of wineskin. I remember, you know, I'm not that old, but I grew up as a Gen Xer in the middle of the technology revolution. When I was a little kid, we didn't have flat screen televisions. We didn't even have remote controls. I was my dad's remote control. If you wanted the TV turned, it was the kids who were the remote control. And we didn't have cable in my house. We had bunny ears on our television and maybe an antenna out back. So not only were we the remote control, we were also, you know, if we couldn't quite get the channel in, hey, turn it a little bit to the left or turn it a little bit to the right. 
Some of you remember that day. And in my house, you know, we weren't very rich. We had a, a TV screen. Think about this, students. It was 13 inches wide with bunny ears. But my dad would always invite everyone to watch the game at our house. So we'd have like 50 people in our, in our house watching a 13-inch screen that oftentimes when the big, you know, throw and catch was coming, you weren't sure whether he caught it or not because the antenna was going out. But I'll never forget when I was in grad school, my dad calling me up saying, Dave, you're never going to believe this. I just bought a new high-def big screen television. And by that, he meant 27 inches, you know. <laughs> And he was just so proud of his new television. I went down to visit him after I got out of grad school that year, and I saw he's got this great television, but he still hasn't called the cable guy. He's still working on an antenna. And here is this television. It is wired for high definition. But he's not experiencing all of the newness because his wineskin hasn't changed. So God comes here and he says, you know what? I'm, I'm going to restore you. You can see the picture here. It's the picture of the wasteland returning into Eden again. But it's not just a return to creation. What the Bible always points to is a better than creation restoration when God gets done. It's not just a return to what is or what was it's the emergence of what could be and will be, and it requires a new kind of wineskin. It requires a new kind of thinking. It requires an innovation and able to accept the restoration. So he says, I'm not just giving you old wine. I'm going to give you new wine. And that's going to require a new way of thinking and being. Purification that doesn't lead to restoration becomes legalism. But restoration that doesn't lead to multiplication becomes hoarding. And that's why this next part of the process we see in verse 28 and following, it says this, and afterward I will pour out my spirit on all people your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young, men, your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in the last days. He says, this restoration isn't just for you. It's not just for the spiritually elite. But as I begin to restore all things, there's going to be a multiplication of this restoration, which is going to require an empowerment of everyone. And I love the, the language here because it says your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. It's usually the opposite. Usually it's the young guys with all the, 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 the vision and it's the old guys with all the prophecy. But he says this is going to be exactly opposite. And he said everyone's included. In, in, in a world where, 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 where oftentimes there, there was this this gender divide, God says, on your men and your women, on all my servants, I will pour my spirit out. And we drew this with a little bit of a line like here because multiplication, it's kind of like investing in crypto. You think it's going to go up and to the right, but it's very volatile all along the way. 
And so God says, you know what? I'm not just restoring you to a better than creation restoration. My heartbeat is to empower all of you in a way that changes everything. Between these two different possibilities is a, is a window of and Joel is putting this in front of the people of Judah, the people of Israel, saying, you get to choose how you respond in your tragedy. You don't always get to choose your tragedy. But you do get to choose how you respond in the middle of it. And you can either let that total devastation, that, that, that current devastation become total destruction. And, and the one way you do that, here's the one way you ensure that your current devastation will become your total destruction. Here it is. Just don't change anything. So they can keep going the way they're going and not change anything and their current devastation will become their total destruction. Or Joel says there's a different kind of way. It requires leaning into purification through repentance, but it moves to restoration that requires innovation and eventually multiplication that comes through empowerment. And you get to choose. And here's the deal. If you read the history of Israel and of Judah, they never make it through this cycle. There are moments where Josiah brings his reforms and there's some purification, but it never fully gets to restoration and it never gets to multiplication. It is not until the life and ministry of Jesus that you see the full ramification of this. Because what did Jesus' life and ministry look like? Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, Jesus appears on the scene. He says, the time has come. That word kairos, not the word chronos. Chronos is where we get tick-tock time, chronological time. 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock time. Jesus says, no, not that kind of time, the kairos time. God's timing in the midst of time has come. God's appointed time, his anointed time. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near, he says. And what's his first message? Repent and believe the good news. There's some purification that needs to happen now that the God's timing has come in the midst of this. Change the way that you think. Metanoia. Have a paradigm shift. Look at reality and, and turn. Change. This is Jesus' ministry, Mark chapter 1. But by the end of Mark chapter 1, the purification is leading to restoration. He heals a man who has leprosy. He breaks down the walls between the clean and the unclean. Jesus lives in a world where clean things don't touch unclean things because the theological system of his day said if something clean touches something unclean, the unclean thing makes the clean thing unclean. And so here's a guy in Mark chapter 1, verse 40 through 42, who, who's unclean, and he comes to Jesus and says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. The Bible says, filled with compassion. Filled with compassion. In other words, the, the Greek word there is Jesus' size. He looks at the man and says, this is not what I intended. Filled with compassion, the Bible says. Jesus touched the man. Now, Jesus sighed when he saw the man. When Jesus touched the man, everyone around Jesus gasped because clean things don't touch unclean things. There's walls between clean and unclean things, but Jesus breaks down the walls. And this time, when the clean thing touches the unclean thing, the unclean thing gets clean. Restoration is happening. 
But it's not just Mark chapter 1, it's Mark chapter 2. There's a guy who's lame, he can't walk. Thankfully, he's got four friends who lower him in front of Jesus. And now, Jesus is not just busting down walls, he's bursting through ceilings. And now, in this moment, the ceilings are crashing, and this guy is being lowered in front of Jesus. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees don't know how to accept this. Who has authority to forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus says, so you would know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He looks at me and says, pick up your mat and walk. And he does. He's restoring tables. He's eating with tax collectors and sinners. Those who had no room at the table find their place at the table. In Mark chapter 3, he finally heals one man's hand. It's his right hand. It's an important deal. That's the working hand. That's the greeting hand. Not to be crass, but the left hand was kind of the, the, what they call the toilet hand. And so here's this guy. He's never really had a day of rest in his life. And Jesus is on, 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 he, he, on the Sabbath day, heals him. And the Pharisees have a problem with this because you don't heal people on the Sabbath. But here's a guy. He's never really had a Sabbath in his entire life. He's never really been restored. But here's what Jesus knows. Jesus knows the Sabbath is not just about rest. It's about restoration and it's changing things. It's an innovative ministry. And what is Jesus' words there in Mark chapter 2, his parable? He says, I'm giving you new wine, but the new wine has to be poured into new wineskins. Because if the new wine is poured into an old wineskin, it will burst the wineskin, and both the wineskin and the wine will be lost. It's a restoration that requires repentance, that requires innovation. But in Mark chapter 3, Jesus calls his disciples to it. He trains them and he sends them. He empowers the multiplication of his movement. When the Pharisees are trying to destroy his movement, Jesus does something that determines the future of his ministry and movement. He invests in a few that multiply to others and he empowers them to do everything that he has. The rest of the Gospels is this story. It's the story of the cycle. And by the time we get to Acts chapter 2, the cycle is coming into fruition. And on the day of Pentecost, the day that we are celebrating today, all of a sudden God's spirit breaks out on men and women. 3,000 people are added to the church. And what is the passage of scripture that Peter picks up to describe that day? It is Joel chapter 2. It is Joel chapter 2, he says, this which Joel talked about, that we never fully got to, is now being fully realized through Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost and available to all. So bring it back to me. Because seven weeks ago, I felt like I was up on the top, upper right of multiplication. And now I'm back to current definition. And I got a choice to make. Is my current devastation going to lead to my total destruction? Or am I going to press back into purification? To be honest with you in this moment, that has been hell. It has been comforting to know that there is a process that I can choose. So what's that looking like? 
Well, in that purification piece, it's me asking myself some hard questions. Why is it that I tend to partner with people who sabotage me? And why, when this whole thing came down, did I feel both great sadness and deep relief? What was that deep relief about? And as I think about the possibility of restoration, I think about the possibility of walking with stars. And my wife and I were having a lovely, lively conversation around all these things the other night. Because she's also asking these same questions to me about myself. <laughs> and it occurred to me that there is no more emotionally scarred being in the entire universe than God himself. That God has invested and given to others in a way that has been wasted. and He has been betrayed, denied, rejected. That time and time throughout scripture, he, he, he gives us for such a time as this moment to, for such a time as this person, and sees it wasted. That God has partnered with more people who have turned their back on him than anyone, and yet he continues, he continues to dare to trust humanity, even in the midst of the emotional scarring that has happened. That there is no emotionally more scarred person in the universe than God, and yet God continues to innovate, and he continues to empower. So if this is the way that God acts, and this is the way that Jesus acts, and this is what Joel says is the answer in the midst of our tragedy, then let's choose together today, church. Let's choose today to let tragedy shape our trajectory, but not let it turn into our total destruction. And instead... Let's lean into purification and restoration and multiplication. Because what we do in the midst of our devastation matters. I don't know where you're at today. I don't know where you're at on the cycle. And I don't know where you'll be at seven weeks from now. But I do know there is a time-tested cycle that is fully manifested in Jesus that you're invited to wherever you find yourself today. Let's pray. Lord, I am asking you to purify. We are asking you to restore us, restore me. We are asking you to multiply us, multiply me. We come today like the man in Mark 9 who says, I want to believe, help my unbelief. So we bring our belief and unbelief before you and submit to your ways. Help us, God. Let the gospel be manifested in us. We love you. In your name.